0: Deeve Cordigalair, my name is James Nagel. Welcome to the Irish Nation Lives. I was becoming obsessed with the idea that if I remained in Dublin, my days were numbered. So Dan Breen begins Chapter twelve of My Fight for Irish Freedom. Tipperary's Big Four had been summoned to Dublin following the rescue at not long in May of 1919, and after refusing a general headquarters directive that they go into hiding in the United States, they were enlisted by Michael Collins as affiliate members of the squad assisting on operations such as the killing of G-min and the ambushes aimed at killing the Lord Lieutenant, Sir John French. By mid-1920 the squad had crippled G-Division of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, but the new head of the Combined Intelligence Service, Ormond Winther, had established a raids bureau dedicated to gathering information on the Republican movement and had flooded Dublin with intelligence officers. In July of 1920 the new divisional commissioner of the RIC in Munster, Lieutenant Colonel Gerald Smith was shot dead in Cork and British intelligence mistakenly believed that Dan Breen had been involved. In response his brother, Major George Osbert Stirling Smith, a World War One veteran then serving with the Royal Field Artillery in Egypt, departed for Ireland bent on avenging his brother's death. It appears that Smith contacted General Sir Hugh Tuther who, as Winther's superior, assisted Smith in getting to Ireland where he was given an unspecified role in the burgeoning British intelligence structure at Dublin Castle. It's suspected that he was part of a group that entered the Exchange Hotel on the 23rd of September and shot dead John Lynch, a Sinn Féin councillor from Limerick who was in Dublin to hand over money collected for the national loan. They would later claim that Lynch had pulled a gun on them when they tried to arrest him, and the military court of inquiry passed a verdict that he had been shot by a soldier in self defence. Michael Collins, however, wrote that, There is not the slightest doubt that there was no intention whatever to arrest Mr. Lynch. Neither is there the slightest doubt that he was not in possession of a revolver. Collins later believed that a number of the British agents involved in Lynch's killing were shot dead on Bloody Sunday. The British had intensified their efforts to destroy the Irish Republican Army and Breen describes how Crown forces stopped tramcars to search passengers, sealed off parts of the city to conduct house-to-house searches, and took suspects to Dublin Castle where they were tortured for information. The IRA and the Republican government were dependent on safe houses, though these were becoming compromised and there was a constant fear of touts and spies. On the 10th of October, Breen and Sean Tracy had just entered a shop where they had arranged to stay for the night when someone rushed in behind them to tell them that they had been followed. They had to find somewhere else to stay and the following evening they were followed again, temporarily losing their shadow by getting on a tram to Drumcondra. They reached the house of Professor Carolyn and his family at 11.30 and finding the family asleep, they let themselves in with a key that they had been given and went to bed. At one o'clock on the morning of the 12th of October the house was raided by nine men under the command of Lieutenant Philip Atwood, some of whom had been trained at an MI5 spy school at Honslow. Tracy's Parabellum jammed and Breen was hit multiple times as he fired on the soldiers coming up the stairs. Breen covered Tracy's escape through the bedroom window and after forcing the agents to retreat he made to get out as well but tripped over two dead bodies. A third was writhing on the floor, groaning in anguish. At least two British operatives were killed in the raid, including Major Osbert Smith. Three days later, he was buried in Banbridge, County Down, besides his brother, whom he had failed to avenge. Following the raid, Professor Carolyn was pushed up against a wall by British agents and shot by mistake while being questioned. He died a few days later. Breen had gotten out through the bedroom window and broke his big toe running through the streets with no shoes on. Badly wounded and on the verge of collapse he made it to another safe house and the next morning was snuck into the Mather Hospital under a false name where Professor Carolyn also lay dying. When he arrived there he had a brief but welcome reunion with Sean Tracy. Each man had assumed that the other had been killed and though not heavily wounded, Tracy, like Breen, had walked for hours before finding safety. The men shook hands and Breen was stretchered into the mather. They would never meet again. Despondent, stressed and worried for his friend's health, Tracy is described as acting recklessly over the next two days. He moved about Dublin openly amidst a massive search for himself and Breen. On the night of the 13th of October he slept under an armed guard of squad members and the following morning he went to the Republican Outfitters on Talbot Street owned by Pather Clancy and 1916 Commandant Tom Hunter, after which he visited the family of Seamus Robinson's fiancée. By now he was certainly being followed and he returned to the Republican Outfitters where he was urged by members of the squad to go into hiding. Instead, he headed back out onto the streets and as he attempted to cycle away, two plainclothes officers jumped from a lorry and knocked him to the ground. Tracy drew his parabellum as a number of other plainclothes officers closed in around him. He managed to kill Lieutenant Gilbert Price before he was shot through the head and killed instantly. He was 25 years of age. No one had the nerve to tell Dan Breen what had happened, but in his autobiography, he says that he knew his friend was dead. When Michael Collins visited, Breen asked him where Sean was and says that... Mick averted his eyes and replied, He's out in the country. Tracy's death was a major blow to the IRA in Tipperary. He had advocated establishing a flying column in the county and would likely have commanded the one that was set up in October had he lived. A second Flying Column became operational in early 1920 under the command of his close friend, Sean Hogan, though Seamus Robinson thought that he was too young for the job. The necessity of establishing Flying Columns marked the changing nature of the conflict and the pressures that the IRA were now under. Winther's intelligence organization in Dublin had scored a number of major victories and the auxiliaries were utilizing government sanctioned reprisals to demoralize the civilian population. By early November the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, felt confident enough to declare, we have murder by the troth. Military reports told him that the IRA would be crushed by Christmas or in the first few months of 1921 at latest. While ambushes were striking at the auxiliaries in the most active parts of the country, a massive operation was being prepared for Dublin to wipe out the new intelligence structure and disabuse the British of the notion that they were on the verge of victory. Before then, the plight of two prisoners would focus world attention on Ireland. On the next episode, I'll address the final days of Terence McSweeney and Kevin Barry and how they influenced the next century of insurgent warfare. Accorda, thank you for joining me on The Irish Nation Lives. Slong a Fool.